Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are uh, continuing in a sermon series that we've been in for the past few months on the book of Exodus. Uh, This great story of God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. And last week, uh, our story reached kind of its high point as uh, the Passover, God comes in, uh, and finally, the final of the plagues, uh, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, and God's people are finally uh, let go from their slavery and begin their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And so throughout uh, this series in Exodus, uh, we've been looking at the parallels, the incredible parallels that the New Testament draws with the Old Testament in showing that we too are on a journey from slavery to sin and death into our promised land, into our inheritance uh, as sons and daughters of God. And so uh, this morning, our scripture reading starts in Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. If you're willing and able, would you stand as we read God's word? And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought, bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten uh, in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person, person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. 
This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. There is a copy of a book on my children's bookshelf uh, that uh, if you have children who have ever graduated from anything, you probably have on your bookshelf. I believe my boys got this when they graduated from preschool. It's called, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Uh, by Dr. Seuss. You may have seen this book. Even though when you graduate preschool, we don't kick you out of the house, you come back. So, uh, But this book starts this way. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. And the story uh, tracks our hero uh, as he goes... Uh, in uncharted directions. Some happy, sometimes he's, uh, I think at one point, he's sailing on hot air balloons. Other times he goes down dark alleys, he goes through a swamp. It's a picture of life as a journey. Life as a setting out, and oh, the places you'll go. You can see why it's a popular book as a graduation gift, uh, because it does mark kind of that setting out into life as a journey a journey that will take you places you expect and places that you don't, places you want to go and places you would rather avoid. It's also a suitable picture uh, of the fact that our life with God from the perspective of scriptures is a journey, right? That it is far more a journey into the unknown than it is a destination. Now, one small quibble with the good Dr. Seuss is that the scriptures tell us we are not on our own, and even though we know some things, we are not the ones who will decide where to go. One's reminded of Jesus in his final meeting with his disciples in the Gospel of John before his ascension, where he tells Peter uh, that you will stretch out your hands and another will lead you into places you would rather not go. Right? That if life with Christ is a journey, it's a journey that, it, while there's some bits of it that are in our control, very much of it is beyond our control. It's a handing over of our lives to another who will guide us where he wills. The unmistakable point of view of the Bible, if you read it, uh, is that life with God is an adventure and a journey. Here we are, uh, 12 chapters into the book of Exodus, and the people are already set free, right? It only took God about 12 chapters to get his people out of the land of Egypt, and it's going to take the remainder of the book of Exodus and the next four books of the Bible to get them to where they're going. It's far more about the journey than it is about either the setting out or the destination. The disciples, in the same way, are called to follow Jesus, to leave what they know, to leave their fishing nets, to leave their tax collector's booths, to leave the comfortable and to set out on a life following Jesus in a journey of discipleship. Their final commission as Jesus goes to heaven is as they go on their journey, as you go, make disciples of all nations. Life with God is a journey. Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University puts it this way. When we are baptized, we, like the disciples, jump onto a moving train I love that, that picture, that when you're baptized into Christ, whether as an adult or as a child, 
You come, you jump onto a moving train. You're a part of a journey that started way before you. It's a story that started when God called Abraham. It's a story that kept going as God led his people out of Egypt. It's a story that kept going as Jesus invited his disciples into this journey. And we join this journey. 2020 has been a journey, hasn't it? You could write an oh, the places you'll go just of the events of this year. Right? We have seen more ups and downs, more sharp turns. We've had crisis on top of crisis. And this is not a surprise to our God. We have not gone anywhere on the journey of this year uh, that he has not seen and known and been with us. And so I love that in the book of Exodus, God does uh, his saving act, what he says here, with a strong arm, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. God does his work. And there's still a lot more action to come, right? We still have Pharaoh chasing after the people. We've got the crossing of the Red Sea. We've got Mount Sinai. We've got incredible uh, action still to go. But the story stops here. It pauses from God's strong arm redeeming, redeeming the people. And before it fast forwards and goes on to the story in the Red Sea, God gives his people two gifts for their journey. He takes a pause in the book of Exodus to equip his people for the journey that's ahead of them. And we're going to look uh, at these, over these next two weeks, this week and next, at these two gifts that God gives his people, that God gives to us for our journey with him into an unknown world. The first gift is the gift of memory. That's what we're going to look at today, the gift of memory. And then next week, the gift of God's presence, his personal presence that goes with us in our journey. This week, we look at the gift of memory. What God is giving his people here is a ritual. Two rituals, actually, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Repeated rituals that they would uh, perform year after year with the given function of helping them to remember their story. Helping them to remember God's mighty hand in his grace in their life and on their behalf. Memory, remembering where we come from. Uh, remembering who God is. Remembering what God has done for us is a huge theme in the Bible. It's a huge theme in the Christian life. The Apostle Peter, near the end of his life, uh, as he writes uh, the book that's, the letter that's in our Bible is 2 Peter. Peter writes this. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body, so he acknowledges his coming death, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So think about it. Here's Peter. Uh, you know, the Lord's uh, disciple, the one who was one of the early leaders in the church. And as he's approaching his death, he doesn't say, hey, here are a few new things that I've been meaning to say. 
right? Here's a few new teachings that I just haven't had time to get to you that I want to make sure that you hear. No, what does he say? He says, I'm going to say again the things that I've been saying all this time. I want to remind you of what's true so that you can hold on to these memories. Peter saw it as a part of his calling as one who witnessed the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to remind them of what's true, remind them of what Jesus taught, remind them of what Jesus did. That memory is an important part of what it takes for us to follow Jesus. Jesus himself, uh, at his final Passover, uh, the meal that we celebrate as the Lord's Supper, says, do this in remembrance of me. Right, that it's given as, a, as a, a token of remembrance. Now, we believe that there's more that happens at the Lord's Supper than just memory. We believe that Jesus is really and truly present with us. But that it does have this memorial function that we remember when we take the bread and drink the wine, that we are joined with him in that act. And so we're told when, when the people of Israel are given uh, the Passover... At the beginning of chapter 12, a section that we were in a couple of weeks ago, God tells them that they're, they're given a new calendar in this moment. God tells them that this month is now the first month in their calendar. And this act is the first day of the first month. And so what God does is he, takes, he says, look, what I'm about to do on your behalf is going to reorder your entire calendar. It is... It, the, day, the year doesn't start anymore with when you thought it started. The, day do, the year doesn't start anymore on the Egyptian calendar. Your calendar now starts with the month of Abib, and you start the first month with the celebration of the Passover. This is the beginning of your life. This is the beginning of your year. Then they're given these statutes. Right? You noticed our reading started with this kind of sorting out of who could participate in the Passover and who couldn't. Right, that um, if somebody had been circumcised into the people of Israel, they could participate in it, even if they weren't born as Israel, if they were a, a sojourner, if they were a servant, that they could participate with the people of Israel. But if somebody was just a sojourner with them and hadn't been circumcised, then they were not supposed to eat uh, the Passover meal. Now, this can seem to modern ears uh, kind of strangely exclusionary. Right? If you believe that God is a God of grace, if you believe that God is the God who rescues people, even if they don't deserve it, then why shouldn't everybody be allowed to, to eat the meal? Why shouldn't everybody be allowed and brought in to this story of God's grace and his mercy? But this, uh, God's provisions here do make a way for absolutely everyone in the world to come into the Passover story. Right? What, he's, what he's drawing a boundary on is that if somebody's uh, a visitor with you, right? If somebody uh, has come on a journey into the land of Israel, if somebody is going with you uh, for a while, if they're doing business in Israel, there were all sorts of the religious life of Israel that they were welcome to come into and to observe, right? There was a, there was a part of the temple when it came to be built that was explicitly for them, right? For the Gentiles, for non-Israelites to come in. But what this is saying is that if you want to participate in the story, if you want to participate in the meal that celebrates God's saving act on their behalf, that you had to actually take that step of identifying yourself with God's people. 
right? That you couldn't participate in it as a tourist, right? Um, the, the Passover meal wasn't meant to be sampled to decide whether or not you wanted to be a part of it or not. I remember, this is a memory that if you're young, you may not have, uh, younger than me, you may not have had. But if you remember indoor malls, um, Jacksonville used to have a few of them. I think, we, I think the Avenues Mall is still kicking. You would walk through a food court and people with food on toothpicks, right, would just run at you to get you to sample the bourbon chicken or the sesame chicken or whatever. You could get an entire meal just walking around the food court at the Avenues. And I think in my teenage years, I did. But what, what the author's saying here is that the Passover meal isn't a free sample. Right, it's not just to see uh, if you like it, that it's an identification of yourself with the story. It's saying these people are my people. This story is my story, even if this is generations later and I was born in another country. That to participate in this meal is to say I was there. I was a part of that people that came out of Egypt. I was a part of that people that passed through the Red Sea. I was a part of the people that wandered through Egypt, uh, wandered through the wilderness on the way to the inheritance. I'm a part of that people. And that's why in our church, um, when we come to the communion table, which we hope to get back to soon, right? when we come to the communion table, it, in a service that every, in every possible way, we try to acknowledge that, that on every given Sunday, there's people who believe and people who aren't sure yet if they believe. Right, that we have members and guests every single Sunday. We have people who come every week, and we have people who are just here to check it out and are, have deep doubts on whether any of it's true. Right, in a service that aims to be deeply inclusive at every step of the way, there's a moment when we come to the table where we say, this is a family meal. Not because we desire to exclude people, but because we want people to understand the way to inclusion. The way to inclusion isn't through getting the snack at the end of the service. Right? The way to inclusion is through Jesus. It's to place your faith and say, I'm a part of that people. I'm a part of the people who, in spite of our sin and our doubts, are trusting in Jesus to save our lives and to save the entire world. So the Passover, uh, as well as the Christian Passover, the act of communion, is in some ways a drawing of a line in the sand. It's a, it's a way to admit that there is belief and there is unbelief. And that though in all of our hearts and lives, they're mixed at all times. Right? There's moments in every believer's life where you wake up and you wonder if Jesus really rose from the dead. Right? Doubt comes into all of our lives. But that there is a difference between belief and unbelief. There is a difference between saying, Lord, I'm not sure if I believe, help my unbelief, and saying, I'm not sure if I believe, I'm, I can't do it. And so communion is an invitation to say, come to Jesus, come to his meal, come to his people. And so certain people uh, are excluded uh, from this, but for all those who are included, there's a, re a reenactment in a memorization of what happened in the first Passover, God saving his people from Egypt. It's not another Passover, it's not another salvation, but it's a remembering of the, uh, the strong arm of God that saved them. It's a means of reminding yourself of what's true. It was meant to be a means of passing on the faith to the next generation. 
right? They say explicitly so that when your son asks, why are you doing this? You tell him, right? You retell the story every time you keep the Passover meal. That it's meant to be a part. Remember, we talked at the beginning of this service about uh, the, the reality of the, the multi-generational church. The church that began before we were born, that worships God in heaven today, that stretches out long after we leave this earth. Right? That the church is not bound by time or space. And this is a, a reminder of that. That in some ways, if you believe in Jesus, you believe because someone passed down the faith. Right, if you're in Christ, it's because the apostles told somebody, and then those people told somebody, and then those people told somebody, then those people passed it on to their kids. That there is a passing on of the faith that's, that has to happen for the faith to continue. And so the story goes from the commemoration of the Passover that was to happen at the beginning of the new year on into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's what starts in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 3. That they were to get all the leaven, which leaven is a word for yeast, uh, that thing that makes bread rise. And they were to for a week. So the first couple days are preparation for Passover. Then you have Passover. Then for the next week, they weren't to eat any bread that had yeast in it. So it was all uh, unrisen, unleavened bread. This is a commemoration of the fact that when, uh, when God set his people free from Egypt, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They were told just to make the bread, put it in your back, and go. And they were supposed to commemorate this year after year. As the story of the Scriptures goes on, leaven or yeast uh, becomes a symbol uh, for contamination. It's an interesting thing that happens metaphorically in the Bible. It's not that yeast is evil, right? You don't need to feel bad about eating a, eating a yeast roll. Um, but the yeast becomes a metaphor, right? Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Beware that little bit of contamination that works its way through a whole lump of dough, right? Yeast breeds and multiplies, and a little bit can infect a lot. And so what Israel has here is really the story of the gospel in miniature, right? They begin with a celebration that it's God's act that sets them free. They're freed by God's grace, but then as it goes on, they're supposed to purge out of themselves uh, the contaminating factors, right? And so it's a, it's a picture of the story, right, that our salvation comes before our sanctification, right? That our, our being called holy by God precedes our actual growth in holiness, fighting against sin, seeking to grow in character. And they're reenacting that year after year, set free by God's grace, and then journeying with him on their life of faith. Year after year, God's people did this. One generation to the next. As we wrap up, I want to talk just a minute about a word that almost nobody in our culture, uh, including in the church, has any positive connotations with. Uh, and it's the word ritual. When was the last time you heard someone describe ritual in a positive way? Right? It's almost... It, Almost every time someone uses the word ritual, it has the word empty in front of it, maybe the word meaningless, uh, maybe the word mindless, right? We think of rituals as those mindless things that people do, sometimes people of faith do, that they just start doing without even thinking about it, right? Maybe you grew up uh, with what felt to you like empty rituals, right? Uh, you go to church on certain days, you pray certain prayers, you learn certain words, 
But your experience of growing up was that they were just words that you had to go, had to, go to and go through, but they never meant anything to you. I remember in the church that I grew up in, I, I, rem- I had memorized the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed and large sections of the prayer book before I had any idea of what they meant. But I want to speak just for a moment in defense of ritual. Because, look, whether you like it or not, you're shaped by your rituals, right? Human beings are ritual creatures, right? You go through certain habitual patterns day after day, year after year, and they do have a shaping influence on your life, right? If you um, just think about uh, your morning rituals, we use that word sometimes, right? You wake up, maybe you brush your teeth. I hope at some point in there you do that. Uh, you drink your coffee. Uh, then you have a choice to make, right? Maybe, maybe you jump right into your work day. You've slept in a little bit. And now you got to get going. The kids have needs. You've got to get moving. Maybe you've woken up a little bit early and you have time to either read your Bible or check your phone or whatever you're going to do next. And I want to say that whatever you do in those moments If you do it day after day and week after week and year after year, it will shape your character and it will shape your life. If the first thing that you check every morning is your social media feed and your news feed and your work email, at some point that's going to make you the kind of person who lives for their news and for their work. If you're someone who year after year begins the habit of pausing in a moment of quiet to pray, reading God's word to hear from him, even when you don't feel like it, right? Even when you'd rather hit the snooze button again, it will eventually make you the kind of person who has a bit of quiet in your heart in the midst of a noisy world. We can think about it annually, right? If annually the, the calendar that sets your yearly rhythm is the one that Hallmark sets for you, then eventually that's what you'll live for. Or if you're the kind of person who lives by the fiscal year that your company sets for you, making your numbers, meeting your bottom line, all of those kind of things, right? We have choices about what kind of calendar we live by, right? There's people, right? We're in the middle of a, it's a weird football season, but it's a football season. There's people whose life is broken up between recruiting season, spring football season, football season, and postseason. Right? That can set the rhythm of your life. And so the scriptures and things like this, like things like the institution of the Passover, is God calling his people to say, set better rhythms. Set rhythms that remind you what's true. Set rhythms that ground you in grace. Set rhythms that remind you of your story and remind you of the gospel. This is why we try to rehearse the gospel each year in our worship services, right? At the end of this month, we'll begin the Christian year of Advent where we begin looking forward to Christmas. Then we'll have Christmas. Then we'll have Epiphany. Then we'll have Lent. Then we'll have Easter. Then we'll have Pentecost. And there's there's no verse in the Bible that says you have to do this. But it is, I think, building on the history of Israel that says build your year around my story. Build your year around my grace. We rehearse the gospel each week. Our services each week are designed to move us through a rehearsal of the the grace of God. Invited by his grace in our call to worship, confessing our sin, receiving his mercy, praising him for it, 
receiving then from Jesus, from his word and around his table, and then blessed and sent out into the world. We encourage you to celebrate and rehearse the gospel each day through daily prayer and communion with God. We need help remembering. We're prone to wander from God because we're prone to forget. Each one of us has a type of spiritual attention deficit disorder, right? That our eyes are easily pulled from what we're, where our focus ought to be. And so we need God's help to remember. I'll just, as we end here, remind us. You may know, you may have noticed that we're in an election season. Did anybody notice that? Uh, it will finally come to a head on Tuesday. Amen. One way or another, uh, it will reach a conclusion someday. And I want to remind us uh, that no matter what happens, your, your story has not changed. The story of your life is not about nations and who rules them. Now, we vote because it matters. It matters for your life. It matters in the life of your neighbors. You ought to learn. You ought to make votes out of your convictions. All of that ought to happen. But your story started long before Donald Trump or Joe Biden were ever born. Your story continues no matter which one of them is the next occupant of the White House. Your story has an end that is not threatened by the rising and falling of nations because your story begins in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And your story ends in the consummation of all things. Your story ends with Jesus on the throne. That is your story, and that is my story. Amen. I will remind you that the Sunday after the election, regardless of what happens, about half of us will be excited and feel good about it, and about half of us will feel dejected. Um, maybe all of us will feel a little bit disillusioned by the whole thing. I urge you in the spirit of brotherly and sisterly love, if you're excited, wear your excitement privately. <laughs> that is, the Sunday after is not a Sunday for a riding with Biden t-shirt or a Make America Great Again hat. Right? It, is a story, it, is a, it is a time to come together in our common hope. Because brothers and sisters, our story ends in the redemption of all things. Our story ends, as the book of Revelation tells us, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, this year has been a year where we have gone to places we never would have foreseen. We have wept together, we have laughed together, we have survived together. Lord, um, through pandemics and elections, through the grappling for a better world, through all of this, Lord, you reign on your throne. Lord, we thank you for your grace that was there with us at the beginning of our journey. We thank you that with a strong and outstretched arm, you redeemed us. We thank you that you guide us through the vagaries of this life with its ups and its downs, its light and its shadow, and that you will bring us home. Lord, we know how this story ends that the story ends with us gathered around your throne in a new heavens and a new earth, singing praise with all your saints 
and with all your angels and with all the company of heaven to the praise of your name. It's in that spirit, Lord, that we come now to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.